Hello, and thank you for joining Fisher Phillips' latest podcast series, where we focus on all types of issues dealing with the future of work. In this podcast, we will tackle issues like workplace privacy, trade secrets, social media in the workplace, and generally anything having to do with the new normal workplace. My name is Dave Walton. I'm joined today by my partner, as always, Brent Cosro. Brent and I are both partners at Fisher Phillips in the Philadelphia office. Although we're based in Philly, we both have practices that are national in scope. We're going to talk today about part two of our discussion about the Van Buren case, which is a recent Supreme Court decision dealing with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So let's jump right into it because we've got a lot of stuff to uh, cover here. Brent, you're the expert on this, so I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Um, have there been any cases that have already discussed the court's decision in Van Buren? Yes, this has been uh, one of the more dynamic times uh, that I can recall where you've got a Supreme Court case that comes down that deals with the electronic workplaces, we like to call it. Um, the Van Buren decision comes down, it affects literally millions of Americans and their rights with respect to their computers, employers' computers, and the data residing on it. And lo and behold, we've only had that case out now for you know, less than 60 days. We've already got a series of decisions where federal district courts are interpreting the Supreme Court's holding from Van Buren. Great. Well, just let me uh, ask you about a few of them. First of all, it's my favorite one. I call it the RAP study case. Uh, it's Speckman versus Fabrizio, which is a July 6, 2021 decision from the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of New York. Could you uh, talk to us about that case? Yeah, the RAP study case, uh, which is Speckman versus Fabrizio, it's an interesting case because it has a fact pattern very different from Van Buren. Uh, Speckman involves a group of college kids who get together and form uh, a computer application that somehow involves an analysis, study, and recording of rap music. Uh, exciting enough, court goes into great detail describing you know, how the business development side of that, yes. of that frolic and detour went. And then, of course, um, you know, when things went south and the relationship between these, these college kids and their business dealings, litigation ensues. The case comes down to something very different from Van Buren. In Speckman, what happens is um, Speckman gets sort of locked out of computer programs and applications yes. that these guys formed, um, used rather, when they were forming the company and developing RAP study. And Speckman's claim was that there was a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act by locking him out of the applications that they all had access to and all were using when they were working together and the relationship was seeing sunnier days. Um, so Speckman brings this claim and the court ultimately concludes wait a second, whether or not you've got a Computer Fraud Act violation depends on who really owned these applications and who created and gave access to the data that was residing on the computers where these applications were being used. Ultimately, the court held that the defendants were the ones who sort of owned and administered those applications. And as a result, they were the ones authorized to decide who actually could use and, and, and have a gate up or a gate down, so yep. to speak, if you want to use um, the language of the court in this case from, from Van Buren. And the ultimate conclusion in the case was, look, if they have that right, they have the right to put the gate down as the Speckman. Yep. So as a result of that type of holding, Speckman has a really bad day in court. He gets his complaint dismissed. Uh, he gets his motion for a TRO denied, and the court dismisses with prejudice all computer fraud claims. Yep. 
Now, I, I, uh, I think it's interesting to note about this case too, that the applications, I think, were the Google suite of products of Google Drive and uh, the GitHub, where they stored the source code. So these were not applications that were developed by these, the particular players in this case. These are commonly used ap applications. And what the court was saying was because Speckman, because he gave these other guys administrative access to both of these programs, then they by definition had authority. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Then. Okay, good. So let, let's jump into the uh, the next one, which is near to dear to both of our hearts. It's out of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, a decision from June 21st, 2021. This is a criminal case, United States versus Eddings and Dennis. Could you uh, tell us about this case? Yeah, the United States versus Eddings case, uh, uh, for those of us who are, who are in the Philadelphia office, again, this is sort of in our backyard. Um, for those of you nationally, this is, this, is a, this is a Philadelphia sort of story where uh, it involves fundraisers and people who are working for fundraisers. What ultimately happens is the relationship between the fundraiser and the employer, it's called IFC, went south. Again, um, you know, one of the things we see in a lot of these cases is that a, a, a sort of sine qua non of, the, of all the fact patterns is that a relationship goes badly in the workplace. And here, once that relationship went south, um, this, this employee was uh, quickly became a former employee, didn't work there for very long at all, and then realized, well, wait a second, I still have access to my employer's server, the email server, um, even though the termination of employment occurred. Again, and this is something we see in cases from time to time too, where an employer fires someone or there's just a resignation, lo and behold, IT forgets to shut out the person from the computer yeah. system, and that former employee can still get back in. Um, that is that is very fertile ground for a computer fraud claim. And and I'll just say we see that a lot, even with the biggest and most sophisticated employers. It's not the small employers that are doing this. And I I also see it not just on the email systems or the of company servers, but services like Dropbox. So for all you people out there, terminated employees, think broad. You got to cut off their access to everything, not just the internal systems but also the external systems like a Dropbox. But sorry for that interruption. No, um, that's, we can get back to uh, Eddings. That's a, that's a, no, that's a classic, a, a classic thing we see from time to time in cases. So Eddings, um, after the employment ends, Eddings sort of tries to log back into the email server to access a bunch of emails. Um, and ultimately, IFC turns this over to law enforcement and it proceeds as a criminal case. Uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, it has, its provisions are both criminal and civil. So the same statute gives rise to criminal liability and civil, which is why many of the cases we talk about over the years, the jurisprudence in this area involves uh, a lot of cases that are captioned United States versus, obviously Van Buren was one of those. So this case proceeds and, um, you know, Eddings as a very, in, in a very clever way, tries to argue, wait a second, I, I could still access this stuff. Um, I, I'm gonna move to dismiss the indictment altogether. Exactly. Um, and the court ultimately concludes that, um, you know, the motion to dismiss the indictment is denied. And what, what the court ultimately concludes is something critical to what we understood Van Buren to be. And that is a case that really didn't touch this fact pattern. In other words, Van Buren involved what, what Nathan Van Buren did while he was a, a current employee police sergeant 
and how he used data that he had access to where his employer left the gate up. Eddings and the case we'll get to is the third in this first group we're gonna talk about today, the Leitner case. They involve something different, which is what happens when a former employer tries to get into the system mm -hmm. that they were one time authorized to access but now aren't. And the court um, in Philadelphia, the federal district court in this case, this, denies the motion to dismiss the indictment and concludes, look, Van Buren has nothing to do with this situation, actually. Um, where you have a former employee who tries to get back in to an employer's computer system, that's not a, a Van Buren type problem. Yeah. That's a problem where they don't have access in the first place. So the court ultimately dis, um, denies the motion to dismiss the indictment and sort of distinguishes Van Buren from this so what we now know is that that line of cases that Van Buren did not explicitly address, that talks about former employees trying to get back into their employer systems, that line of cases is still intact. But and you said something there that's very interesting to me, that she didn't have access, but she had physical technical access still, which was a mistake by the former employer. But to be clear, she had access, she had her username and password and still worked. And so what's interesting to me about this uh, Eddings case is that the termination of employment kind of automatically put the gate down to use the language in Van Buren. And that uh, people who try to limit Van Buren's gate up, gate down analysis to saying, if you have technical availability to something, then it's automatically gate up and you don't have a CFAA violation. That's, at least according to the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, that's not what Van Buren stands for, is that if you have a termination of employment, that's almost like an automatic gates down, and therefore you could have a CFA claim. That's right, and it's, in a way, that makes perfect sense, too, because it's the employment under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that gives rise to the authority to access the computer. And if you think back to what we talked about in our in our last podcast about Van Buren and the CFAA, the CFAA is a statute that was ultimately written about hacking. Uh, of about bank hacking. Yeah, bank hacking, yeah. right. And so a former employee without the access, I'm sorry, the authority to access yeah. a computer is more like a hacker than he or she would be an employee and we're trying to figure out if he or she was exceeding his or her act, her authority to access yes. stuff. Yes. So the former employee indeed looks more like the hacker and that, that's more consistent with what the original purpose of the Computer Fraud Act really was. Sure, and then the, you uh, referenced this case earlier, but let's talk about the, uh, the Leitner case. It's a case out of the United States District Court for the Western District of Missouri. And this is a decision that came down on June 29, 2021. Right. And Leitner, again, involves a situation where sales, where there's former employment at play. Um, in this case, there were two sales representatives who um, ultimately their, their relationship ends and they go back in to access client information. Um, critical to this analysis, not only the relationship end between these two defendants and the plaintiff, but what also happened was that the plaintiff actually called them and said to them, don't you dare go back in there. And lo and behold, they went and did it. Yes. And, and so you, you have that added step. Um, so, you, so here you also have a case, again, like the Eddings decision, you have a 12B6 motion denied um, 
where you know the, the plaintiff can credibly allege there's just no authority here. These people shouldn't be anywhere near these computers or the ESI residing on them. So I think I think the key takeaway from the Leitner and Eddings cases is that Van Buren interpreted, discussed by the courts in each case, but distinguished in a favorable way for our understanding of what the CFAA means, how it can be used, how it's been interpreted um, up to the point where Van Buren was decided. So from this sort of trio of decisions in the last few weeks, we're seeing what I think is really a sound interpretation, not just of the federal statute, but of Van Buren itself. And that's important. We need that clarity. Employers and employees need to know, you know, with great clarity, what are the rules of the road in the American workplace um, in, in the post-Van Buren environment? I, I could still see some courts saying in the future, and this is something to watch out for, that the gates up if you had the username and password, even if you're a former employee. That's going to be very interesting to me to see how the, the Third Circuit deals with, with these opinions and the Eighth Circuit deals with these uh, opinions. I agree with you, though that these courts are reading Van Buren the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it'll be interesting to see how more decisions come out and if they follow this line of thinking. That's right. I think another issue that, that we're starting to, to really see and consider is really what the effect that, that the Van Buren decision has on ESI itself, electronically stored information. And it's really interesting to think about in the following respect. Now, just to be clear, none of the three cases we discussed today address this point, but it's exactly. something I wanna, I wanna tee up for our listeners, for practitioners, and for employers and employees um, who, who've been following along with us through the podcast so far. And that is, one of the legacies of Van Buren is going to be, look, there's ESI itself is protected under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's a statute that's really about hacking, but it's more clear than ever under Van Buren that if the gates are down and there's protection and restriction on electronically stored information on a computer, well, guess what? It's federally protected. Before that, there were different types of information that were protected as a matter of federal law. Take, for example, the Defend Trade Secrets Act. If an employer or a company took certain steps to lock down, protect, Keep, sacred, keep secret and take reasonable measures to ensure the confidentiality of ESI, for example, residing on a computer. Well, that would benefit from, from that, the employer would get the benefit of Trade Secret Act protection. Under Van Buren, here's a really interesting question. What now happens if you have confidential business information that does not qualify for Defend Trade Secret Act protection, but, it, but the gates are down? I, I think you have a CFAA claim in your federal juris, a jurisdiction. Yeah. I think what's going to be interesting in the future is how the courts define how you can put the gate down. What triggers put the gate down? Is it policies? Is it phone calls? Is it just the mere fact you're a former employee? Or does it have to be a technical barrier that you have to overcome when it's gates down? But I think these are fascinating issues. I could talk all day about them. But uh, the, it's been a great conversation again, Brent. I've really enjoyed it. We hope everybody out there has enjoyed it as, as much as what we have. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact Brent or myself. You can visit our biographies on the Fisher Phillips website. Uh, we will be back soon with new episodes and hope you will join us for those. Take care and have a phenomenal day, everyone. 
This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be, and should not be construed as, legal advice for any particular fact situation. 